Thank you for being here bright and early. Um, let's let's do this. We're gonna um, get to small groups first thing this morning, um, but not until we look at our uh, our uh, six disciplines again. So let's take a look at them on the back of your notebook. Think about them. And what are we trying to unify our lives around? What are we calling the men at Grace Bible Church to unite around? Um, It's these six disciplines. The first one is the primary one, that you would shepherd your heart to the Word of God in order to meet with and love and worship and fear and become more faithful to the God of the Word. So that's where it all starts. That's where it all begins, right? Everything... Everything flows out of that. If you don't have that, you're a dry well. Um, You are an empty jar with not a whole lot to offer anybody else, um, let alone do any good for yourself. So anyway, um, that's the the beginning of it all. Um, The next place that needs to be most impacted outside of your own condition, outside of your own heart, with the Word of God and the God of the Word are those that you live with. That's discipline two. We can't play leapfrog over discipline two, over the household and the household relationships. We need to make sure that we're remembering that those are the people that need to be cared for first. There there needs to be a gospel aroma. There needs to be an aroma of Scripture coming off of you. There needs to be an aroma of the God of Scripture coming off of you in your home that impacts, um, let's just start from young and work our way up, that it impacts your your siblings, it impacts your parents by the way that you live, um, as it impacts your roommates if you're a single guy out there living with other guys, um, it impacts your wife, it impacts your children, um, and it impacts your aging mother who has to move back in with you because you're going to take. It doesn't matter who you live with, you need to be able to make an impact. Uh, with the gospel in your home, that when people are in it, they sense this is a home that is um, centered on and influenced mightily by the word of God and the God of the word. That's, but that only happens when you step up and, and make that known and live that out yourself. Um, from there, discipline three makes sense. That kind of a guy is the man that you want to step into every possible relationship everywhere within the church and outside of the church for the sake of the gospel. That man will have a, a powerful life because he is one of gospel integrity from, the, from his heart through his home out into the community and into the church family. That's the kind of man that needs to step into those lives. And that kind of man is the one who would never take food from my back table. Oh, hi, Smed. <laughs> obviously not that kind of man is one who would um, center his ministry on the gospel what he says to others and brings to others and that's what we looked at last week the last two times together with the apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians that Paul uh, was a man we we just looked at his ministry and and the kind of gospel ministry that he had Um, and you can see there that Paul made a big deal about the kind of man that he proved to be when he was among them it's your gospel ministry isn't just about getting the right content, but it's about you as the messenger of the gospel having the right character also. 
The message and the content matter, but the messenger and his character cannot be pulled away from that. So you've got to work on who you are, your own heart uh, before the Lord with his word, your family, and then step into the lives of people. Uh, if a church decides that, well, if they just maybe are even ignorant of the importance of that connection and that sequential thinking that is in Scripture, men very quickly are just put into positions. Hey, you you show uh, you show interest, you show excitement, you show eagerness, you show zeal, you do this, and without a real checking on, well, what do you like before God in His Word? What are you like with your family? What do they think of you? Um, and then the next thing you know, you've got um, un- things unraveling everywhere. And the church suffers greatly. So um, take the time to dig up the soil. Take the time to fertilize it. Take time to put the seed in. Take time to water it. Take time to guard it, to watch over it. And it will grow. A church will grow leadership. Um, God will grow leadership in the church. But it, you have to take the time to do these first initial steps of, of training men and getting them to focus on the right things, calling them to unite around the right things, or else there will be no harvest later at all, right? Um, there won't be. Um, so that, And this is what we're counting on, is, is that there, there's going to be a harvest of men. At Grace Bible Church, there's going to be. There is. It's coming. Um, and why are we doing all of this? For the ministry of the gospel. The gospel mission must advance. It has to advance where we live, through our own church. It has to advance in our community. But it has to advance to the ends of the earth. And we need to send men out who want to go do this and bring this gospel and see it go to the ends of the earth. That's why we do all of this. Um, can't forget the big picture. Discipline 4, we talk about the qualifications, primarily in deacon, um, with deacons, and I'll point that out to you a little bit later. You've got a handout today that it's going to focus in on that. Um, and then uh, we talk about our, our hermeneutic, Discipline 5. Um, we're inching towards those three times towards the end of the year where we're going to um, look at specifically how we think we should interpret Scripture um, as a church. Um, and then lastly, our our vision statement and our purpose statement to be centered in on the glory of God and the cross of Christ uh, for the transformation of lives by the Holy Spirit. And all of that isn't just so that you can be a Christian businessman and make good money and be a happy American Christian. The glory of God revealed itself at the cross of Jesus to transform your life by the Holy Spirit so that you would draw in, build up, and send out. That's the gospel purpose. That's why we're here. There's, you can fail in business. You can, you can not be seen as anybody important in the world's eyes. And as long as you are this kind of a man who's concerned to draw in, build up, and send out, you are a, a, a precious tool in the hands of God for the gospel. Um, so we have to keep our sights on the right things um, these days. It can be very uh, distracting for, for Christian men. Um, and we need to be focused in on these things. So... There's your pep talk. That's what it's all about. This is what build is. Um, we don't. We're, we're not doing other things. We're not going out into the um, wilderness and doing a uh, primal scream together to, to feel our manhood that way. 
If you go do all of that, I'm okay with that. You can scream all you want. You can ride quads. That's fun. I like to shoot guns. That's fun. Uh, you, those things are, are great, but that is not biblical manhood. Biblical manhood is a man who shepherds his heart. Biblical manhood is a man who steps into his household with the gospel. Biblical manhood is a man who brings the gospel to others. And uh, you can have a lot of fun doing some other things as well, but not without those. Okay? All right. What we're going to do is we're going to go into our small groups. We didn't meet last time, so you need to have uh, two different meetings worth of homework ready to hand in today with your name on it and stuff like that. Um, In fact, before we go, I want to show you actually even your homework for for next time. Uh, If you look at the yellow sheet that's on the handout that you got, just so I can go over it a little bit with you so that you understand what we're after. This is an assignment. Every once in a while, we like to have assignments for you at Build that aren't necessarily connected to what we study together. This is one that we we did a long time ago because by nature of the church we are and have been, in terms of uh, being one that has to rent from different facilities, Sundays are a huge, huge. I mean, that's, that's the that's the backbone of really our gatherings, all of our ministries that we do. The one that's the backbone is is the one that's Sunday gathering together. That won't change when or if we get a building. That's our own. That won't change. However, to make the backbone even present. We have to do so much, like pull out tarps, set up chairs, go over, set, bring musical equipment out, take it all down then at the end, um, set up classrooms for kids, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Some of that won't change um, when we have our own building, but a lot of those things will be eliminated. Um, and we'll be able to focus our energies on, on other things, which will be really exciting someday to be able to do. Um, but one of the things that we need the most is we need to make sure that we have as many people serving on Sundays as, as we can. Um, and so this is a handout for you to just with questions and, and points for you to think through. Um, are you involved in a small group? That's the first place to start. Small group is really important at Grace Bible Church. Um, you can be involved in um, build. You can be involved in um, ladies can be involved in wellspring. There can be some good things that happen in, in ways that you can participate in the life of the church. Um, apart from small group, but I tell you, small group is is where that is so crucial because that's where your life is going to become most consistently tied to somebody else's life, to other people's lives within the church. And if there's any desire or any hope for you to be involved in ministry beyond that in the church, the first place an elder is going to look is, and the first thing they're going to ask you is, tell me about your, the way that you care for others in your small group. You may have aspirations to do other things. The first thing that's going to be asked is, how are you caring for people in your small group? Um, that's very important. Okay, So that's what we want to deal with first at the very top. Um, secondly, then, are you currently involved in a ministry connected with our Sunday service, a uh, worship service? There's a list of ways there. We'd like for you to give some thought to that and explain um, your involvement. How would you describe the effectiveness of our Sundays as a whole in terms of just bringing people into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And by that, I don't just mean the lost hearing the gospel, but you hearing the gospel. Are you coming into contact with the gospel when we meet together? Um, in the ministry you are involved in, if you are involved in one, do you see any ways the ministry needs to tighten up the way that it carries out ministry? Um, 
we, we have a tendency, I think, at Grace Bible Church, I think it's probably a tendency just about anywhere you go, that you, you can um, kind of begin to just slowly let some things slip a little bit, you know, in your ministry that you're doing. And then that's just kind of what you keep doing, and then that's just the way we do it. And people step into that, and they see that, and they go, okay, I guess that's just the way we do things. That's, and then everybody just starts marching in step in a way that kind of has slipped. And every once in a while, it's important for us to stop and say, um, you know what? Is this the way we should be walking in step? Could we be doing it another way or a better way? And, and we'd love to have your input on that if you're involved in a ministry. And, and you've been asking yourself the question, why does this church do it this way? This is your opportunity to say, why do we do it this way? And help us see it. And that would be helpful. Um, how well do you understand what your current role is in your ministry on Sundays? Um, that's important. Uh, if you're serving in a ministry and you're not really sure what your role is, that's a problem. Okay? We need to work on that. Do you think you are currently ministering on Sundays where your heart is and where your giftedness lies? Talk to an elder about this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to say this, so I want to qualify this. You serving in the church isn't primarily about your own sense of fulfillment. We'll let that sink for just a moment. It's not primarily about your own sense of fulfillment. I am fulfilled now because I'm doing my heart's desire. Look, if we had our way and could, we would want to make sure that every single person felt just absolutely fulfilled in, in the ways that they serve. Sometimes there's a tweaking that needs to go on in our understanding of what fulfilled means and being happy in what I do. Uh, it's not just doing tasks that I like to do, but true happiness as a Christian comes by emptying yourself out where there's a need. That's fulfillment. Emptying yourself out where there's a need. You may not like and be first gravitated towards the need, the task itself that needs to be done, but we would want to say uh, there's still a need. And if you have an availability, and if you have a desire to empty yourself out, would you please attach yourself to that need and do it? We're not asking you to sign a 10-year contract, but we do need somebody to serve. Um, and we have people who step out of ministries, and, and they do so, the ones that they've been involved in, because, well, that's just not what they really want to do. And sometimes we have to appeal to them and just say, okay, um, but do you, we really have a crucial need here. Can, you, can I help you continue to serve a little bit while we also think about some other things for you? But, you know, I just want to help you understand and think that through a little bit. Don't ignore what would make you happy in a task. That's important. It's not everything. What, where, where, where satisfaction and fulfillment come is when you're emptying yourself out for the gospel, uh, maybe in a, even in a way that you wouldn't think. And I, I think you'll see today how some pretty amazing guys emptied themselves out in some really humbling ways in the early church that they probably weren't saying, you know what, the goal of my life is to be a waiter. I would love to serve little old ladies bread. That's my calling in life. That's what makes me happy. I don't think, I think our passage is going to be good for us today in regards to that. Um, so do you think you're currently ministering on Sundays where your heart is, where your giftedness lies? Talk to an elder. Ask an elder to help you determine where you can best be utilized for God's glory and the gospel's sake on Sundays. 
And then I like to ask this question because this tends to happen in our church as well. Um, whom do you see doing more than they probably should do on Sundays? And how could they be supported and served? As you look around and maybe in your corner of the ministry in the church, you might think, wow, there's this gal, this lady, this uh, guy, they're just, they just do a lot. Um, rather than just assume that's what they should be doing, maybe we should ask some good questions about is there a way to come alongside them and encourage them, relieve them, help them delegate, whatever. Okay? So that's just a kind of a different kind of assignment, but we'd love to hear what you think on those things. All right. With that said, uh, before we go to small groups, elders, do you have anything you want to add to any of that? or No? Say what? Oh, there's some on the back. I'm sorry. Thank you. Oh, yeah, just some good questions on procrastinating. We, we've been guilty of this. Um, Saturday night. Oh, by the way, I can't serve in Next Generation tomorrow. Uh, that's bad, right? Um, what's the effect of procrastination on, on, on the ministry? Um, how do you go about finding somebody to substitute for you? Do you have a to report your substitute to somebody? Does your... Does your ministry leader show up thinking that you're supposed to serve, but only then finds out you're not there, but somebody else is in your place? Is that okay with your leader? That might be. In some ministries, it might not be. And so is there a, a certain way that you're supposed to find a substitute for you? Just This just gets to the bottom of how well do you understand how you're supposed to do what you do on Sundays? And if you don't understand very well, then we need to help your ministry leader be clearer about what is expected. Okay. And that would just be helpful. And then it gives you a chance there to see areas of need on Sundays um, that you see from your perspective. Okay? Thank you, Kelly, for pointing that out. I appreciate that. All right. Tom. Uh, since, since you did a wonderful job putting the ball on the team, can I just... You want to take another swing at it? Please. Yeah. Guys, I, I really would like to appeal to, to you guys. And I know many of you do... Uh, we do have a huge need for the next generation. And I know for the last two weeks, uh, we've made an appeal from uh, every time of announcements and Sunday service. Uh, we've gotten people that are interested. We haven't gotten all the apps in, but we still have many needs. Here's, here's why we have needs. Uh, and I know you've heard in church that we have 16, I think now 17 women that are pregnant, which means if they're serving, they're, they're planning on stepping out, and many of them are due in February, March, we've had a large number step out for a period of time. Uh, but also, because there are so many kids, we're having to add classrooms, and we need to staff classrooms. And so, I, I would want you to be encouraged, because I'm, I'm sure it can be discouraging when you hear Regularly, we need help in the next generation. You're thinking, God, what's wrong with these people? Why doesn't somebody else serve? There, there are well over 100 people that are serving in this ministry. It's not that, gosh, somebody else needs to do it. And then there's a large number that just can't serve on Sundays because they're either in worship or they're doing other ministries that, that preclude them. So be encouraged that many are serving, mm-hmm. but many is that much greater. So I, I would appeal to you, as Scott said, maybe this isn't what you think you really want. It's no longer. It's a very similar. 
Dude, that's a calling right there, guys. And that right there is, is probably about half of the church that shows up on a Sunday. And almost uh, over a third of the church is actually in church. Yeah. And many of them we don't, well, not many of them. Yeah, there's a good number of them that we don't count because they're already in the little ones. That there's are, over 100 kids. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, this is not because people are flaking in their commitment to ministry, um, but it's because it's a double whammy. Uh, people are serving in next generation. They're stepping out and adding children to the ministry. It's wrong. That's <laughs> not wrong. That's right. But there's just a drawback. What are you laughing at, Henderson? You're doing it. <laughs> Who else is here? Let's call them out right now. <laughs> it's a great problem to have. Um, so if you're, and by the way. Guys, if you, if you aspire to maybe be in someday or wonder if maybe God might be doing something in you where you might um, someday, you know, teach and, 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 and or preach, uh, there's no better place to begin than wondering if you can be clear to a five-year-old. If you can't be clear to a five-year-old, you're not going to be clear really to probably just about anybody else. So get there and, and start utilizing your gifts. What a great way. Because when you teach a five-year-old, you're not primarily professor. Right? You actually have to care for them while you talk to them. It's a great place of training to be able to balance teaching and shepherding. Teaching and caring. Teaching and serving. Serving and serving and serving and then the little teaching in with there. And that's a great place for you to have um, to develop some some giftedness and some skills and uh, that will only benefit you later as you get up. One of the best things that I think could have ever happened to me was I taught junior high before I taught anywhere else. Um, and I, I wouldn't take I wouldn't I, I wouldn't miss that opportunity. Uh, that God gave me if I had to do it over again. I would run right through junior high again. So, um, all right, enough said on all of that. We'll make um, six observations about deacon leadership as the local church fulfills its gospel mission. I, every time I, get, I come to this, this subject and this, this passage in particular, I, t- I tell you, I love this subject. I do. This is, um, I hope you are wonderfully shocked this morning. Um, the subject of, of, of deacons can be a, um, can be just like a big old ho-hum. It can be a, it can be a confusing thing. But I tell you what, it is, uh, 
I think when you see it in line of what's going on here in Acts 6, it's just, it's exciting. So as we uh, jump into God's word, let's do what we try to always do, which I hope is what you try to do when you are on your own with God's word. Let's pray, okay? And let's ask God for help. Father in heaven, we do that right now. We ask you for help. We rightly want to understand your word um, because you are revealing yourself here. You're revealing um, you're revealing your gospel mission as it is unfolding in the book of Acts through the local church that's in Jerusalem, through the leadership of the church, Peter, and through um, these seven godly men. You're revealing so much. And here we are, a, a local church, many, many, many years later, and we so much want to be in line in the trajectory of, of what is going on here, God. And so, Father, we don't assume that in and of ourselves we can just open this book of yours and turn to this page and, yeah, we'll just get it. Lord, there are so many obstacles to us getting it that are just found even within my own heart, our own hearts. So, Lord, would you please soften our hearts? Would you make them teachable? Would you make them imprintable, Lord? And then please just stamp your truth in our hearts. Um, Humble us as we sit under you, and may we be in awe of what you are doing at this point in the book of Acts, and may we be excited about deacon leadership even in our church. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I think it's important um, to really rightly understand any subject. You really need to see it in light of the bigger picture that it is a part of. And that is certainly true this morning with deacons and the bigger picture of what is going on in Acts. And so I want to give you an illustration um, that I've used that I think is, is, is helpful. Let's suppose this morning that you walked in here and I had a big video screen ready to go and I was going to show you a clip of a video. It's a clip. It's not the whole video. It's a clip of a video. And without any explanation, I just want to tell you that you know it's, I'm going to show you this clip. And I think you'll be able to understand what's going on. I think you'll be able to gain an appreciation for what's going on in the clip. And so I turn the clip on, and what you see is a well-organized kitchen, a well-supplied kitchen, tons of food and equipment there, a well-staffed kitchen. And the video shows this well-staffed kitchen, uh, all the people serving about a thousand men. They're all dressed the same. Eating a meal. If I hit stop when that's done, you could understand what's going on. You might even be able to gain an appreciation for the uh, the effectiveness and the efficiency of, of what's going on in, in that um, clip. But parachuting down in into that scene, it doesn't... It doesn't allow you to see the bigger picture of what is going on in the video. I, I'd have to rewind it to the beginning and get it there for you to see that. If I did back up, what you would see is this, that the video actually begins in a war room where generals are planning an invasion of an enemy country. They're going to invade by land, by sea, and by air. And then you would see about a thousand troops on a battleship racing across the ocean to get to the battle. And then you would see your clip that you saw of a well-staffed, well-supplied kitchen 
feeding about a thousand men who are all dressed the same. And then we would continue on past that clip and what you would see is the battleship reaching its destination and launching missiles and jets taking off and men fighting a battle. That changes everything about what you saw and yet nothing changes about what you saw. Do you understand? Your context and where your piece fits in in the whole is very important. You need to understand the piece that is fitting into the whole. You need to understand the segment in, right, in, in, in its proper light, in its setting, in its context. And we're going to examine the subject of deacons this morning. And it is a piece. And if you only look at the piece, it's going to be like, okay, I, I can understand that. And I can even have a level of appreciation of that. But you need to see the main thing. You need to see the bigger picture that deacons sit within, that they sit within. And what is the bigger picture? It's this in the book of Acts. It is the gospel mission of Jesus Christ through the local church. It's that gospel mission. It's that battle cry. And we need to see how deacons, and we even need to see how elders, and then all of the saints in the church, we need to see how each of those pieces all fit together for this gospel mission. Um to study what deacons are, but miss the church and its gospel mission would be a hollow study of deacons. It'd be like studying how to... Here, let me show you how to serve a meal, and I'm going to show you a clip from a, a battleship. Well, that's not the point. The point is these soldiers need to be well-equipped to be able and, and ready to do what they're, they've been called to do. So we can't talk about deacons we can't talk about elders, for that matter, without talking about the mission of the gospel through the local church. Um, so I want to read the passage in the New Testament here that I think hints at the coming of a formal deacon layer of leadership in the church. And I mean that. It hints at it. You will not find the word deacon anywhere in here. You will not find the word elder anywhere in here. Uh, but you will find, I think, what are prototype deacons here. And I think you'll see the apostles functioning as prototype elders in a local church. So I want to read verses 1 to 7 of Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said, it is not desirous for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men, uh, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I think these seven men are prototype deacons. I think... <coughs> The apostles are functioning as prototype elders in the church. 
Um, another illustration I would use to help understand why we would look at this passage to understand deacons when deacons aren't even mentioned yet um, is, is the seed slash tree illustration. Um, a seed can't technically be called a tree, right? But we all know where the tree came from, right? I think that's what's going on here. Um, this is the deacon and elder seed in the New Testament that is going to blossom in the rest of the Old Testament into formal, specific instruction from Paul primarily on what an elder is supposed to be, how you identify one, how you measure them, and what a deacon is in the same way. Now, I've been in nine different churches over the last 27 years. I've been a Christian. I don't know how many churches you've been, and it might be interesting sometime to count it up. Uh, and out of those nine different churches that I've been in, as I've thought back through them, um, those nine churches had nine different views of what deacons were. That's not helpful. That's not helpful. They had nine different views of who, who deacons were, what their role was in the church, what they do. Some deacons functioned as elders. Some deacons tried to subvert everything the elders did. Uh, so this is a subject in which it's difficult to find agreement on from one church to the next church to the next church. And so the easy thing to do, I think a lot of times for Christian, is just to say, you know, it's just too confusing. And so you can just let deacons slip through the cracks. And then some of us have even been to churches where they, the churches have let the deacons slip through the cracks. And everything seems to be okay at the church. You know, ministry's going on. And so, I, you know, maybe you don't really need deacons. Um, but the local church can no more let deacons slip through the cracks of life of ministry any more than it can let elders slip through the cracks of life and ministry. Um, Paul wove those two distinct positions together in one chapter in 1 Timothy 3. Verses 1 to 7 are about elders, and verses 8 to 13 are about deacons. If you can negotiate away verses 8 through 13, then you can do what with verses 1 to 7? That's arbitrary to say that the 7 through 8 through 13 don't matter, but 1 through 7 do. We can, be, we can afford to be fuzzy about deacons, but boy, we're going to be focused and zeroed in on elders. Really? That's inconsistent, and we can't be that way. We need to be zeroed in on elders, and we need to be zeroed in on deacons as well. Okay? So what we're going to embark on this morning and in our next meeting together in February is um, Grace Bible Church's understanding of what New Testament deacons are. Um, this was a this is a wonderful process to go back through. I remember sitting around the table in the conference room at Gethsemane, uh, in like our first year there, as we were working through. We need what are deacons? We need to have them. It was a it was a it was a great process to go through. So here we go. Acts six has led us to form these six observations about deacon leadership as the local church fulfills its gospel mission. Number one. We could make a lot more observations than this, but these are six I want to put before you today. Number one, elders committed to the gospel mission of the church highly value deacon leadership. That's something you see going on here between the apostles and the seven men. Um, again, these are prototype elders. Uh, that's Peter. Peter is, is functioning in the role basically of an elder in, in this church in Jerusalem. And the seven men basically... Uh, are functioning as a deacon would. 
but what I want you to see here is I want you to notice how gospel mission-minded these prototype elders were. How, how gospel mission-minded Peter was. You see, this is the goal for all of us. There's not a Christian who's not gospel mission-minded. That's the way, at least, that's not that it's supposed to be, right? Sometimes we can um, get distracted from that. But I want you to especially see how focused Peter and the apostles were as prototype elders in this church. And I want to take you back, starting with chapter 1, verse 8. Watch this. You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You're going to be the ones who will testify about me in Jerusalem. That's where we're still at in Acts chapter 6. Hop over to verse 22. I'm just going to take you through many different passages here. They said... As they were replacing um, Judas, one of us must, one of these men must become witness with us of his resurrection. They're very concerned that, that they are going to be testifiers of the resurrection of Jesus. Go to chapter two, verse fourteen. Peter stands up in front of the cloud, a crowd, and he he raises his voice and he declares to them. He's here. He is. He's he's not afraid to open his mouth and speak to them and. And bring the word of God to bear on them. He's very mission-minded, gospel mission-minded here. Uh, Look at verse 41 of chapter 2. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And uh, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, He wasn't afraid to speak. and, And to have words of his go out that could be received by others. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Peter and these guys were not afraid to instruct out in the church and in the city. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's what was going on with this group of people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. There's there's a response going on with this word. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 11. They were all clinging to Peter and John, all of the people. They, they ran together to the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement, because they just made this man uh, walk who had been lame. And then verses 12 and following here are all about Peter just preaching the word in Jerusalem. He's not afraid to do that at all. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. As the, This is what they was going on. As they were speaking to the people, the priests of the, and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed. Why? Because they healed somebody? No, it wasn't the healing ministry that was the problem. It was the teaching ministry that was the problem, verse 2, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 4. Many of those who heard the message believed. There's the gospel being proclaimed by them. Drop down to verse 12. Peter says stuff like this. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's bold proclamation. Verse 13, as they observed the confidence of Peter. These guys are uneducated, untrained, and yet they are saying some profound things and speaking in a way that untrained and uneducated men don't normally speak. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. So what do they warn them? Stop healing. Stop doing a ministry, a mercy ministry in the, in the community. Stop making an impact on the city by stopping hunger. No, those are all good things. I don't want to demonize those things. But listen, the problem was what? Shut up. Don't proclaim the gospel. Speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 18. 
What did Peter say in verse 20? We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I mean, there's just gospel proclamation going on all the way through here. And so they had to threaten them further in verse 21. Drop down to verse 23. They got back and they prayed together with the rest of the disciples. They lifted their voices. And what did they pray in verse 29? Grant that your bondservants may speak your word to preach this gospel with all confidence. And so, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place that they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word, the very thing that they asked for, they got. They were speaking the word of God with boldness. Now, then you have the interesting account with Ananias and Sapphira. Look over at chapter 5, verse 14. What happens even after that? All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number because of the proclamation of the gospel. Verse 17, the leadership again, filled with jealousy, comes to them, arrests them, takes them away into prison. An angel of the Lord comes, verse 19, while they're in prison and says to them, go stand and what? Speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And so they entered the temple about daybreak and they began to teach. Drop down to verse 27. When they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, Look, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Here's a a confession from an unbeliever in Jerusalem that the apostles were being faithful to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You filled this city with this teaching. Good job, apostles. You've been preaching the Bible. You've been preaching the gospel here. This is excellent what they're up to. Peter says we have to obey God and not you. Drop down to verse 40. We're getting close to Acts chapter 6. Remember where we're at? Don't, don't check out. Hang on to this. Verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And at this time... At that time, what time? When these men can't shut up about the gospel, you can beat them and they keep preaching the gospel. It's at this time when the disciples were increasing in number that a complaint arose. Gospel mission-minded elders could not take their eyes off of the gospel mission at a time like this. Widows aren't being fed. It was at this time when Peter and all the guys are preaching and they're getting beat up for this. And he says in verse 4, look at it, or look in verse 2, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. What does that mean? What does that mean in this context? We will not stop preaching the gospel. We will not stop the mission because widows are not being fed. We're not going to stop what we're doing to feed them. We need somebody else to feed them. Look at verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What does that mean in this context? What's the ministry of the word? It's the gospel mission. The city must continue to be overflowing with the teaching of Jesus. We're going to devote ourselves to that. And what was the outcome? Look at verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. 
These guys, these prototype elders, value a layer of leadership that will do this very, very important ministry where widows are not being fed. Very important. They value it. Why? Because something much bigger is going on that cannot stop. It cannot be stopped even by widows who aren't being fed. Their job as prototype elders is to continue the ministry of the word. It must advance. It must be proclaimed. It, we won't stop. We have to devote ourselves to it. We're going to keep doing it. We're never going to stop. You can beat us all you want, and we're going to keep preaching the gospel. Somebody else, please, qualified men, godly men, you feed these ladies. You have to understand the broader context, or you just can't appreciate what's going on in Acts 6. These men valued a specific qualified group of servants to assist them. Look, they didn't. They don't have this attitude, guys. They don't have this attitude of like, oh man, what a bummer. This is a terrible moment in the, in the church. This is terrible. We need to, just pick anybody to do this. Anybody but us. That's not what they say. They're very thoughtful about the kind of men that must be picked for this. Does somebody have a question or a comment? Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every Christian is an evangelist in, in some senses. Um, at one level, we all are. There's, it's not like um, the Holy Spirit births again you know, certain types of believers who um, like to share the gospel and others who don't. No, we all do. Some of us do it much better than others, but we all do. And so... When disciples are made, they are witnessing disciples. That's who we are. We are witnesses. That's our identity. So God is going to raise up some to be deacons, and God's going to raise up some to be elders, and he raises up witnesses of Jesus to be deacons and witnesses of Jesus to be elders. And so elders will be responsible in local churches to make sure that the witnessing of the gospel continues. They need to be making sure that in their own personal lives it does. Um, and uh, that's going to take place within the church. It's going to take place beyond the edges of the church. And uh, yeah, so Peter, or um, I'm sorry, uh, Timothy needed to be reminded that um, you need to be an evangelist also. The gospel needs to go beyond this church as well. And he had an expectation that Timothy would be participating in that so that's right in line with I think what's going on here so these men were very careful about picking the right kind of men to carry out this mission um, these prototype deacons in verses 2 and 3 let's look at it again the 12 some of the congregation of the disciples and said it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God that's just interesting we don't desire to stop doing what we're doing in order to serve tables Therefore, 
Brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, men who are full of the Spirit, men who are full of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word of God. Um, they were raised up by, uh, to help these prototype elders and the church so that the church could remain focused on the gospel mission. Um, it's, it's a weighty gospel mission. It was a costly gospel mission for Peter. They're getting beaten for it. Um, and yet it was a fruitful one. While What are the bookends on this? Verse 1, disciples were increasing. Verse 7, the word of God kept spreading. Disciples were continually increasing. They were being added. Uh, it's a fruitful ministry. Um, and it says that what, what, is, what is the problem that gets thrown into the church at this time? What is the devil's tactic? What is he doing? A complaint arose. Um, but it's interesting the way that Peter, this is very instructional to me. Um, I've been, I'm, I'm very in, in impressed by this and need to keep this in, in front of me as an elder much more so. The way in which a gospel mission-minded elder here, or a prototype elder like Peter, handled this complaint was to handle it in, a, in such a way that the main thing could not be taken off its track. Yes, we will solve this complaint, but we'll do it in a way that we can't be taken off track of the main thing. Every complaint, every challenge, every obstacle in the church needs to be handled that way if at all possible. Um, and so the church needs men who long for that same big track to keep going, that, that same mission to keep going on unhindered. Um, and that mission is much bigger than um, any one of us or all of us put together. We need to work together to see that happening. And, and elders of churches need to be connected to like-minded, qualified servant leaders who can complement the deficiencies that elders have so that the gospel mission can continue on without hindrance. At some point, this complaint would be a hindrance if left untouched. Peter is just saying, we shouldn't be the ones to do it. We need a group of men to do it. So, second observation, number two. Deacons are men marked by the fullness of the Spirit. I want to talk about fullness of the Spirit here in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation. I just want to isolate that, that one quality here, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. The men need to be marked by all of these, good reputation, full of wisdom, um, that as well. But I want to talk about fullness of, of Spirit. Um, why is fullness of the Holy Spirit so important in Acts? Um, you need to notice as you go through Acts the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. I, I encourage you, as you read through the book of Acts, just in your margin or even if you just circle it in there, just circle every time you see the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God or however the, the phrase is used, just circle and watch how often it's used, especially in the early pages of it. Um, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 again, what's the role of the Spirit? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. So the Spirit is, 
is uh, necessary for power. Evidently, the nature of the church and the nature of its gospel mission is such that it will, it will go nowhere unless there is power from God for it. That's what's being said by Jesus in Acts 1, verse 8. They need power. So watch this. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There's fullness of the Spirit. Look at verse 33 of that chapter. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. Contextually, why did he pour out the Spirit? For the fullness that is needed for power for the gospel mission. Look at verse 38. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Contextually, what is he talking about? Primarily fullness for the power of this, uh, for the mission from the Spirit. Um, look at um, Peter and the apostles. They, they believe this. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Watch this. They get in trouble, and so they grab Peter, and they pull him in front of, the, in front of Caiaphas and John and Alexander, the high priestly people there they say by what power or in what name are you doing this what can even the unbelievers see power so what's the question what power is this and then peter verse 8 filled with the holy spirit they, they, they luke's being careful to show us how crucial the filling of the spirit is look at verse 31 of this chapter 431 Again, when they were, had prayed and the place was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Here's an interesting thing going on in the church. Peter says, in light of that, we need we, fullness of the Spirit is, is, is there over and over. Now look at chapter 5, verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? We can't have this kind of fullness of heart. We can't have this. Um, look at um, look at verse 17. This is an interesting contrast of chapter 5. The high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with what? Jealousy. What a contrast these guys are. These apostles are full of the Holy Spirit in it, and, and, and the leadership of the temple is filled with jealousy. Um, chapter 5, verse 32. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Look, Peter knows the role of the Spirit here. So when Acts 6 comes with its challenge, with the complaint, one of the things that Peter's thinking of is, you know, a guy who does this must be a guy who's full of the Spirit. That's what's been laid out before us and made clear to us. Why would we pick a man that isn't full of the Spirit? It didn't even compute to him to do such a thing. So deacons are men who need to be marked by this fullness of spirit. And and what we're going to do a couple of different times is we're going to isolate two of these seven men, Stephen and Philip, because more is written about them than any of the other ones. Look at the life of Stephen. Watch this. He was indeed filled with the spirit. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. Stephen, full of grace and power. What, what, What is that power there? Most likely it's the power of the Holy Spirit that he is full of, right? Look at verse 10. Uh, that 
those men of the synagogue of the freedmen who rose up to argue against Stephen, verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The spirit of God is upon him for that. Look at chapter 7, verse 51, at the end of his um, message. He, He is a man who's full of the spirit, who happens to be able to get it and observe that you men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. He, as one who is full of the Spirit, can see that the problem here is that Israel is resisting the Spirit. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the only way a man with eyes in his head can see into heaven is that the fullness of Spirit and his power comes upon him to be able to let him see such a thing. So Stephen was a man who was full of the Spirit. Uh, Let's talk about Philip for a moment. Acts 8, verse 29. Persecution sets in. Philip takes off running with the gospel. And then um, he he heads up into Samaria. And then the, the Spirit, look in chapter 8, verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. He tells him to go on this desert road in the south, right? Um, and so he, he goes there, and the Spirit tells him to join the chariot where the Ethiopian eunuch is. And look how this section ends in verse 39. When they came up out of the water of baptism, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing, and Philip kept going on preaching the gospel. So the book ends on this little excerpt that Luke provides is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit said, go up and talk to him. The Spirit then took him away when he was done. Who is in, who's empowering this mission? It is the Holy Spirit. And Peter, or I'm sorry, and Philip is, is experiencing this. And so the question that I think that any church after Acts has to ask itself is, do we still believe this? Do we still believe that the gospel mission today requires fullness of the Spirit? It may not manifest itself. The fullness of the Spirit may not manifest itself exactly like it did in Acts. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't need the power of the Spirit for the gospel mission. Are we aware of our tremendous need for power from God in the Spirit to proclaim the gospel? Listen, for those of you who are parents and you've got kids and you're bringing the gospel to them, do you recognize your need for the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to your kids? Are we aware of the Spirit's prominence in the church if we are to have an effective mission for Jesus Christ? How often, guys, do your thoughts drift away toward the Holy Spirit for power? the gospel let me ask it in the negative way how often do you just assume he's present oh, of course yeah, he's, he, I'm indwelt by the spirit and therefore power is just always there that's more like where I'm at I, I don't have to intentionally think about a need for the power of God in the spirit for the gospel mission When was the last time you purposefully asked and you sought intentionally, God, I need more power from your spirit as I live out and preach the gospel at work, before my kids, 
in my church, as I preach, as I teach. When was the last time you thought of that? Deacons are men who are marked by the fullness of spirit. You know why they needed to be? Because all of the Christians were marked and should be always marked by fullness of the spirit. And they just need to be leaders as deacons of fullness of the spirit before the others. Number three, deacons, like all disciples, are committed to the gospel mission of the church. We've been talking about this, but we're going to highlight this even more. In general, the spirit of God makes no other kind of disciple when he applies the atoning work of the cross, when he regenerates and when he recreates somebody, except a believer who loves the mission of the gospel. He just doesn't make anybody else like that. And I think this is what's so important about having, like for our gospel or our uh, biblical vision and our gospel purpose as a church, I think this is where it's so important for church to have something like this where one element of it is, is kind of the gospel, the glory of God and the cross of Christ and, and the transformation of life that the Holy Spirit brings. That's gospel-like. But we are drawing in, building up, and sending out kinds of people because of the gospel. The gospel does not make any other kind of person than that. Churches might give the impression to their people that you can be saved, but not really have to be concerned about the gospel mission yourself. That's what other people do who go on trips, and you can participate merely by just giving money to the missions. But that's not the way that the Spirit makes a new believer. Uh, somebody makes them into. What's interesting is that the New Testament reveals that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God both themselves are witnesses of Jesus. Therefore, think about this. If the Spirit says and reveal is revealed to be a witness of Jesus and the Word of God is presented as a witness of Jesus, what happens when that Spirit and that Word richly dwell in you? When these two witnesses come to richly dwell in me and in you, what, what happens? We become witnesses. How can we become anything else? And so obviously then these deacons were committed in that way. What I want to show you is that the word of God is a witness. Look back at John chapter 5. The word of God is a witness to Jesus. John 5 verse 39. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, these scriptures, that testify about me. The Old Testament, witnesses to Jesus. Drop down to verse 46. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote about me. Moses, the Pentateuch, reveals Jesus, points to Jesus. Uh, Go to Luke 24, a very familiar passage that we've looked at several times as we've been in Acts. But let's, let's hit him again. Luke 24, verse um, 27. Beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The scriptures are concerned with Jesus. Verse 32. Um, their hearts burned within them as he was explaining those scriptures to them. Uh, verse 44 to 49. This is an interesting passage because here you find the words which reveal Jesus and the Spirit who is a witness for Jesus all converging on the disciples who would be witnesses for Jesus. Watch this. Verse 44. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he says, 
said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here is Jesus using the witness scriptures telling the disciples that you will be witnesses and I'll send the promise of my Father who is a witness to you. They will all converge together at Pentecost and the gospel mission runs. Okay? This is central. Deacons are men who are committed to the gospel mission of the church. The Holy Spirit is a a witness. Let me show you just briefly. John chapter 16. John 16 verse... um, 13. His last night with the disciples, he said this, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. The spirit will glorify Jesus for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He'll reveal it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and he will disclose it to you. So here's the Spirit of God as a witness to Jesus. Um, Go back into Acts. Acts 5, verse 32. Peter says this. He understands this. Acts 5, 32. Peter says, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. So once again, deacons are committed to the gospel mission of the church. Deacons are committed to being witnesses. Why? Because they have the witness word of God and they have the witness Holy Spirit and they have both of those. And when those two converge within a disciple of Jesus, inevitably they are a witness. So these disciples who are going to feed widows bread are very much committed to the very same things that the apostles are. This thing cannot get off track. This thing cannot get off track. Stephen became a witness of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Look at verse 10. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the lack and the spirit with which he was speaking. Look down at verse um, all of chapter, well, you can look at all of chapter 7. Here he is testifying to them, right? It's, It's unavoidable that Stephen was a powerful witness. What about Philip, the evangelist? Uh, Philip, no, he's Philip the um, waiter in Acts 6. That's what he is. He's Philip the deacon. He's Philip the bread server in chapter 6. Now watch this. I love this about Philip. Go to chapter 8. Persecution hits, and what is the waiter doing? He was doing what he was before when he was serving tables. He was preaching the word, proclaiming Christ to them in Samaria. Um... There were many unclean spirits. He was given the ability to uh, have them come out. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Drop down to verse 26. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a desert road. So he got up and he went. Verse 29, spirit said to him, go join the chariot. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth 
And beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I wonder where he learned that from Jesus. Um, Verse 39, the spirit takes him away. Verse 40, Philip found himself at Azotus. That's a great, I just love that. I stop every time I see it. He found himself. That's just cool. I want to ask him what that was like. Um, And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all of the cities until he came to Jerusalem. Now, jump. the next time he's mentioned in Acts, go to chapter 21. Watch this. Paul is on the scene now. In Acts chapter 8, he wasn't even a believer yet. Now Paul is the the main um, highlight in the book of Acts from chapter 9 on, really. And and Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem. Watch this in in Acts 21, verse 8. On the next day, Luke says, We left and we came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the deacon, Philip the waiter, Philip the bread server, Philip the what? Evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus and others came and and so forth. Philip, by Acts chapter 21, is known as what? He's an evangelist. Now, did he start doing that um, after he was a deacon? Because being a deacon, you can't really be very evangelistic. Uh, because you know it just requires you to be a, a mercy ministry person and you just meet physical needs of people. And then, wow, luckily he was set free from that so he could start preaching the gospel. No. He was always this. He was always this, even as he was serving bread. It's that kind of leader that must lead ministries in a local church. What other kind of disciple is there to choose from except this kind? So the gospel mission direction and influence and flavor of the church needs to be always protected like it was in Acts chapter 6. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be promoted. It needs to be advanced to every corner of the church through prototype elders, prototype deacons. There needs to be no wasted motion in the gospel mission. The thing needs to make sure that it's staying on the track. And as you're even meeting a complaint and trying to fix and solve a complaint, the way that you fix it and solve it is with a certain kind of man who's aware of the gospel mission, right? Not one who's good at conflict resolution merely. But a man who's saying, look, we are going to solve this complaint because of the gospel. That's why. That's what they were looking for. No wasted motion anywhere. So the first prototype deacons were amazing witnesses for Jesus Christ. Get this, amazing witnesses of Jesus Christ served widows bread. That's what they did. Amazing witnesses of Jesus Christ served widows bread. Amazing witnesses of Jesus Christ met the need of this complaint. Deacons, like all disciples, number three, are committed to the gospel mission of the church. Number four, the gospel mission of the church is more effective with deacon leadership. That should be a no-brainer. Back at Acts chapter 6, think about this. The church in Acts 6 has the potential to quickly become, if it hasn't already, it has the potential to become sedentary or stuck, actually unable to contribute toward the gospel mission. Do you know what's going on here? It, It may be difficult because they use the word Hellenistic. What does that mean? Why did the Hellenistic Jews complain? Who are the Hellenistic Jews? 
They are the Jews who took on Greek culture. They would have been viewed how by the Judeans who didn't do that. Compromisers. In fact, you guys are such compromisers, maybe your widows should fend for themselves. So you've got Hellenistic Jews who have become believers in Messiah, and you have Judean Jews who have become believers in Messiah. And what you have basically going on here in the early church to derail the gospel mission is a racial, ethnic charge. That's a pretty effective strategy, don't you think? So that's what's at stake here in verse 6. So get this, in, in challenged ministry areas like this one, God's desire is to bring a certain kind of man to the ministry and to the challenge. Um, he wants to bring a certain kind of man who is gospel mission minded. He wants him to bring his gospel mission influence to redirect the ministry. What these, what these two factions needed was a man who oozed out the gospel mission. Really, this is what we're going to do? Hellenistic Jews and, 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 and Jews? Is this what we're going to do? We're, gonna, we're not going to serve each other bread. Is that what, that's what's going to go on here? No, 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 no. I'm going to serve everybody bread for now. Philip and I and these other five, we're going to do it, and the gospel mission goes on. Learn from us in this. Watch this. The idea here that is not in mind is Peter doesn't look around and go, what? Well, who can bake bread? Let's get a guy who can bake bread. That's not what's on his mind. The wisdom of these early prototype elders was to bring the gospel mission-mindedness of these men into this challenging arena and impact the neglected hungry widows, a hungry widow who's not getting what she should get, one of the things that must happen while her need is met is she must be remembering this gospel mission cannot stop. And the one who is the offender, the one who is overlooking her as he repents from what he is doing or not doing, he needs to be reminded the gospel mission is at stake. What this group of people needed and what the widows needed were men like Stephen and Philip. So God's desire here is to have every ministry influenced by the gospel mission of the church. You would want your well-staffed kitchen staff to remember and think as they're serving soldiers. Some of these men are going to have to make very, very important decisions when they're in battle. And they need to be in their best shape possible. That's what you want a kitchen staff to be thinking, is it not? What do you want your widows to be thinking? What do you want those who are in charge of serving widows thinking? This gospel mission is, is crucial. It is weighty. Let's do this right. So deacons were a catalyst for that. Because what's the outcome? Verse 7 of chapter 6, what's the outcome? As a result of what they did, the conclusion statement is the word of God kept on what? Spreading. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Number five. Deacons humbly serve to meet specific needs in the church as it fulfills its gospel mission. Deacons humbly serve to meet specific needs in the church as it humbles, 
as it fulfills its gospel mission. What do I mean by humble service? I mean exactly what is stated here in verse 1. Um, widows were being overlooked right here in the daily serving of food. That's humble. That's just being a, a, a waiter. That's being somebody who just brings food out to the table. Most of us um, are not aspiring for a job like that these days. No, we used to do that. And um, we were okay with doing it for a time because we understood, no, I just need this to pay the bills as I'm working towards doing something far more important in my eyes. Right? It's a, it's a noble right thing to do, but it's a humbling thing to serve that way. Um, verse 2, it is called serving tables at the end. So this was humble servants. Deacons do that. Humble service. For specific needs. What do I mean about specific needs? Well, the specific needs, if we would um, make an observation from Acts, would be um, the tasks that the elders decide that they don't think they should do for the sake of gospel ministry. So those are the specific tasks they should do. In chapter 6, the specific task that was uh, unique to them was widows need to be served. How long do you think, Philip, if, if persecution, we don't know how long, I'll have to do some checking on how much time elapsed from chapter 6 to chapter 8 when persecution hit. But how long do you think Philip and Stephen and the guys would have done this, would have served bread to widows? How long would they have done it? Until when? Until the needs gone. Until the problem is solved. The intent is not that now forever more you deacons serve bread because you guys have proven you can't take care of it. Right? Do you have a question? Comment? Yeah. What, what kind of distinguishes the difference between um, and I don't know if it depends on the context of the time period of the church but the an official office of a deacon for a specific deacon versus just different areas of ministry. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, what you don't find is you don't find the New Testament spelling out these tasks and these roles within a local church are deacon roles. And so if you're going to do those things, churches, you absolutely can only do them if you have deacon leadership. Um, what you're just going to find is that there's a lot of freedom that there should be deacons and there should be elders. And what we can observe from Acts 6 as a guiding principle, not a it's not a mandate because it's a narrative passage, it's descriptive, it's not prescriptive, it's not telling us what to do, it's telling us what they did. We're making an observation from it. We're trying to pattern ourselves off of that. If a church did it a different way, we wouldn't condemn them for it. But it appears that elders are trying to be focused more so on the mission of the gospel to go, the preaching of the word of God to be going forth. And if they view a task that would distract them away from that, they want a layer of servant qualified leadership to do it. And so I think there's a, a lot of freedom for an elder uh, board to decide what they want to do. And we've asked ourselves questions all along of when we have ministries that are going on, is that a ministry in which we would want a qualified servant leader to, to serve in? And um, so that's what we have been working on for for the last, well, as long as I've been here, for eight years, that we're trying to, in all of our, our preference would be if we're going to have any kind of formal, identifiable ministry, our desire is we want to have deacon leaders there. 
And so we're growing in that. And even that we would want a qualified servant leader to be looking for property for us, for a facility for us, that Mike Caruso would be a deacon uh, and serve that way. Um, so I think there's a lot of freedom for a church to decide where and what. And I would only think it's to your, your, the church's advantage that as many deacons as possible for any ministry role would be ideal. Does that answer your question? Or get on it? Mark. Is, uh, is there a process for deacon selection? Is it narrative or prescriptive where uh, the prototypical elders laid out so that deacons should look like? But then they said, you church, yeah. go pick deacons. And later they say, we, we have a final approval of them. We'll lay our hands on them. Right. But yeah, um, what we what we do is we really rely on First Timothy three for this, because um, uh, without trying to ignore observations like that from Acts six, because in First Timothy three um, you'll see next time we're together when we work through that passage that um, deacons need to be tested first before they serve. That does not mean that they need to test drive their deaconship. Hey, you serve as a deacon, and let's watch how that goes. No, no, no. We watch how you serve, and we see how you have been tested and refined by God in the way that you serve in the body. And because of that, we have qualifications listed for us. And so we evaluate, and we involve our congregation uh, for elder selection and for deacons uh, because that's a help to us. Uh, we are seven or eight men, and um, we don't know everything, and we can't we can't see everything about a man or men who are pursuing a qualified office. But somebody in the body can, and might be able to help um, make sure that the process is more thorough or more complete or or or, or just better. And so we rely on the body. Um, uh, Lord Eric, when are you done with your twelve the twelve months of internship for the elder? You're you're an intern elder in this church, so uh, just to make sure we're on the same page with that. Um, just <laughs> Don't egg them on. When is your intern? When is your 12 months up? We're, we're end of February. Okay, so what we would do with him is what we've done with every intern is we have. Uh, brought them to the body and said, here's a man that we have invited into. Um, he, has, he has filled out an elder internship application. And the same thing is true for deacons. I'm just giving you a parallel here. Um, and so he has evaluated himself according to what is in First Timothy 3. And we're letting you know, uh, as an elder, we're inviting him into the internship. It's our preference as a church, preference, preference, preference to have a man serve alongside of us where he can watch us in certain capacities like an elder, but we get to work with him and he gets to work with us for a year before. We can extend that longer. We can end that whenever we want. Um, we can, uh, but we want to have some time serving together. And then we go back to the body and we say to the body, as elders, we are very comfortable uh, that this man has satisfied all the qualifications. He demonstrates himself to understand what biblical shepherding is. Um, it is the right season of his life to, to do this. He holds our doctrine as a church and can defend it. Um, we present him to you as an elder. You have 30 days, four weeks, to 
talk to him if you have any concerns about him or his character, or you can come talk to us. So that's how we involve the body in a way, and, and we pattern that more off of, um, well, there is no pattern from Scripture that says do it exactly that way. We pattern that off of our own experience of we want to be very, very careful. But for deacons, you at least need to have an awareness that they have to be tested first, First Timothy 3 says, and we'll cover all this next week, and then let them serve as deacons if they are um, qualified to do so. Um, and then, so we want to watch a man, what kind of a way is he serving currently where he's at before we, uh, for instance, like a Mike Caruso, he'd been a small group leader for um, quite some time. And so one of the things we did is we asked the question, what, how has he served there as a small group leader? He's served well, he's, he's a respectable leader. Um, and so then we evaluated him by the qualifications for deacon. And then we took him through that application process. We all met with him as elders individually and then all together. And then we presented him to the body as, as a deacon. And we gave the body an opportunity to respond to our presentation of him. And then we all put our hands on in front of everybody saying, we are connected to him. He is an extension of us. He is doing something in this body that we think is important to do that we don't want to do and that is to go look not because we don't care about it but because we want somebody better to do it than us and we are accountable to him or he's accountable to us there's accountability here with the church if something goes wrong here you guys know who to come to the elders because we made the selection um, so uh, that's a broader way we'll get more into that next week but um, uh, 1 Timothy 3 gives a little bit of, uh, spells out a little bit at least how we can walk through that process. Did, did any of like the confessions, like the Westminster Confession, or any, any of those get deacons right? I don't know. Or do they even speak to deacons? I don't, I don't know. I'm not... You kind of just look to scripture because there's not really any shoulders to stand on. To, no. I mean, the Presbyterians have it right, or Baptists, or... I don't know. There's, I, when, when we went through this, we didn't rely on a whole lot of stuff like that. There's, there's one good book out there that I know of that uh, Alexander Strout has written, but even with that, we don't agree with his view of deacons because he views that a deacon is only a person who does a mercy ministry type of thing, like feeding somebody who's hungry. And if I think that's making too large of a conclusion from Acts 6. That happens to be what was the case there but I think a church has a freedom to be able to, for any other task that an elder would believe would be a distraction from the, the advancement of the proclamation of the word of God, to raise up deacon leadership for it. So, yeah, there's not a whole lot in, in church history with that. Yeah. What if there's a need that arises in the church, but there's no men that are that would meet the qualifications of a deacon, mm-hmm. but this man does prove himself to be like a faithful man? We are in that situation and have been, and we have men serving there the best they can, and we um, nudge them all of the time. Deacon, be aiming for deacon qualification. Are you praying about this? Here's a, we'd like. Here's an application. We have no hesitation asking you to do this. At some point, I do think the rubber needs to meet the road, and, and we may, as elders, need to say, okay, you just don't want to be a deacon. We really want a deacon to serve in this capacity, so we're going to find somebody. Um, we may be at a you know a point someday where we need to do that. But if a church is, like our church was young. I mean, we had, when everybody fled this church, when it was 600 plus people, 
And within a matter of a year, it's down to 130. And people fled ministry. There were young men who ran to the dike and put their fingers and their toes in to keep it from breaking down. Many of those men who did that were very young in their faith, very immature in their faith, and were not at a place where you would ultimately want somebody to be spiritually. So what do you do? At a time like that, you say, we're going to work with you. We're going to walk very closely with you as elders. And so we walked very closely with these men. We watched their lives. We exhorted them to shepherd their heart, to step into their home, and to bring the gospel to bear in ministry everywhere they were. And guess what? God was, I think, has been very gracious to this church. And many of those men who were in that position have become godly men. They were young godly men then, but they've become even more godly, mature men. And so I think every church just has to really weigh carefully. Um, you know, we'll have the best men that we can serve. And so you're pushing for that. I want to get to uh, Denny. Let's do that. Tom, did you have your hand up? Or? Okay. Danny, and then we'll come back with the mic. I have a question. And, uh, it says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you uh, seven men of good reputation. Mm-hmm. My assumption is that these were new believers. So would this reputation have extended back prior to uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I don't think so. By, by Acts 6, um, you have, um, and I'll, I'll try to get some years for you. Um, in fact, I have them written in this Bible somewhere. I try, I'm trying to, as I go through, I'm trying to get a feel for it. Because you can read Acts 6 and go, it, it, maybe it's just a few months after Pentecost. It's not. There's some period of time that um, has extended. It may be a matter of a few years. So, I mean, is that a new believer? Yeah. Young believer. But what I think he's talking about there is that within the body, within that body of believers, look, all of them are new. You know, especially in Messiah. Um, and especially in their understanding of the way the Old Testament revealed him in the gospel and, and, and all of that. I think they, in their context, were to identify men who had a good reputation among them. And um, so younger churches, uh, look at Paul and the gospel mission. I mean, there's some uncomfortable things he does. Goes through on his wave of the, of the gospel mission, and, he, and it says that he went back through every church and they appointed elders. He just preached the gospel to them. Um, I don't think that's telling you that you have to appoint gospel or appoint elders immediately after that. But um, in those settings, it's identifiable that there are going to be men who are going to rise up within that setting that are going to be qualified for leadership in that setting according to the qualifications in Scripture. Um, doesn't mean that in a much more mature church that man would be in the exact same place. We can talk about that sometime. It's a very interesting dilemma. That, or not, It's not a dilemma. It's just an observation that in some churches a man might be an elder and in another church he might not. Not because he, the, the, the one church is ignoring qualifications, but among them he is qualified. He is in process in those in a way that makes him a leader in those things to the rest of the congregation. He might not be a leader in those things as effectively in another church. And therefore, you know, and you may disagree with what I just said, and that's okay, but we're at our time, and I want to finish real quick here if I can. Is that all right? Um, we just did number four. Number f- No, we just did number five. Um, so listen, guys, here's the point. Much of what happens in the body requires 
humility. And it requires just humble service. Um, the kinds of things that need to be done in a church are mostly, a lot of them are the kinds of things that most guys are dying to get out of. Um, eager to graduate from. Um, and some of those specific needs that go on will have a visible side and end. For instance, can, if I can give you a, um, an example in regards to Mike Caruso, if, if we get to a day where we say one of two things, hey, Mike, we're not looking for a facility anymore. Or, Mike, thank you for finding the facility for us. Mike would no longer be called the deacon of, well, I don't know what you would call him, deacon of facility search and hunt. And I don't know. But we, does that mean he's not qualified in character? No, it just means that his task is done. What would we do with Mike at a time like that? We could do one of two things. Stand ready as a qualified man for a ministry that we will direct you to at some point. Or we might immediately shift him over and say, would you serve as a deacon in this capacity? Now, um, I think you have that freedom to do that. Um, so it's a task-driven um, kind of ministry. That's what makes it different than eldering. Eldering is not just about completing tasks. Eldering is about shepherding and making sure the gospel continues. Um, and, and so that's why you need these two layers of leadership. They complement each other well. Lastly, number six, deacons are often near complaints and controversy as the church fulfills its gospel mission. The two blanks are complaints and controversy. Verse one, a complaint arose. Guys, let me ask you this question. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? A complaint arose in the church. This probably doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. Unhappy people go to church. Unhappy people lead churches. Complainers go to church. And complainers shepherd churches. Injustices happen in church. Church is not heaven. Church is the church. Um, it's easy also for, for young men, I think, sometimes to, to, to really want... I, I was exactly this way. Here's, here's my thinking when I, why I went to seminary and when I was in seminary. I was like, I just want to preach and teach. That's all I want to do. And I remember one, somebody asked me along the way, well, what do you think about, like, I don't know, loving people? Oh. Well, yeah, I'll do that too. And that's my question that I ask any young man who has stars in his eyes about being the next whatever he wants to be, preacher or teacher-wise, is do you love people? Do you, do you want to step into the lives of people? Um, the church needs men who have a heart to step into the middle of a complaint. Complaints arise within the church. And the church needs men. Like, you need to be the kinds of men who are going to say, you know what, I'll step into that complaint. I'll step right into the middle of it to bring a gospel-centered resolve to it. Um, what do you think about this, guys? I mean, just from your own perspective, what do you think about serving somebody who has even a legitimate complaint against the church, against the leadership, against... What do you think about being the guy who would step into that? I would say that would be a good thing to set in front of you to aim at and say, I want to be that man. God, make me into that man. 
if you become that kind of man, oh, preaching and teaching is easy. <laughs> you know, but, but stepping into that is, is, is challenging. So what do you think about stepping into the midst of controversy? Most of us are like, oh, there's controversy over there. What's Tom's number? Um, that's what we think about. And you know, that's okay. Elders are equipped, you know, are to be equipped to do that. But we need a layer of leadership who's eager to do the same as well. Um, and what do you need to keep your eyes on in the midst of complaint? If any of you are involved in the midst of a complaint, even today, what do you need to keep your eyes on more than anything? What Stephen and Peter and the apostles had their eyes on. The gospel must continue. It must advance. I'm going to bring the gospel even to bear on this complaint. I want to help the complainer see, oh my goodness, the gospel's going. My, my complaint needs to be seen in light of the gospel mission. That doesn't mean it goes away. It doesn't mean it becomes unimportant, but it means that it takes its proper weight. Sometimes people's complaints become heavier than the mission of the gospel. And all of us need to see that, no, my complaint isn't heavier than the mission of the gospel. Um, so what do elders do as we just summarize here? Prototype elders participate in the gospel. They direct the gospel. They help oversee the gospel proclamation of the church. They're prayerfully involved in that as well. And deacons are a very necessary servant layer of leadership that is not any less gospel-centered or any less gospel-concerned. Um, these two guys, look, Stephen, the first martyr, the first martyr in the Bible is a deacon or a prototype deacon. That's impressive. He could handle the word. He brought the Old Testament to bear heavily on his killers. Philip, by the end of the Bible is known, or end of Acts, is known as an evangelist. These guys, these guys were capable with the word of God. It is true that the primary difference between an elder and a deacon is what in qualification? Teaching. Ability to teach. Could these guys teach? If you're hiring, not hiring, if you're laying your hands on somebody as a deacon, they better be able to bring the gospel to bear on where they are. Right? These men were able to do such. Um, so it's a very important servant layer leadership. Okay, so next time, what we're going to do is we're going to jump into 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to watch the seed in Acts chapter 6 become the deacon tree in 1 Timothy 3. Okay? Um, I think that's where it goes. Um, so don't restrict yourself to um, ideas about deacons that no, they, they're not men who preach. They're only men who do servant minister, uh, mercy ministry type things. Yes, they will. But they are able to preach. They are able to teach. They evangelize. They are shepherd hearted. They, they are concerned about complaints. They want to bring the gospel to bear on. Deacons are, are very, very, very important, crucial to the local church. All right. Let's pray. And if any of you have questions or want to talk some more, we can do that as we uh, wrap up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Acts 6. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to um, keep these things in front of us well and even better. Lord, I thank you for the deacons at Grace Bible Church and, and the way that they, they function just like this. They, they free the elders up to 
be concerned about the gospel mission and uh, the proclamation of the word of God in the church and beyond the church. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would raise up in this church uh, even more qualified servant leaders like this. And I pray that you would raise up more elders as well. Um, Lord, we need more. And um, I think you even desire us to have more. God, help us to not rush the process. We can't force anything to happen. But what we can do is what we're doing today. And that is we can um, fertilize the ground and we can till it again and we can make it soft and we can encourage men to shepherd their hearts, shepherd their homes and bring the gospel to bear in ministry wherever they are. And we will trust you with discipline for the qualifications that you will make men qualified in that setting. God, please bless this feeble effort of ours, but we don't know what else to do. This is all we can do. It's all we want to do. And we depend upon you to bring the fruit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.